Welcome to DATCAST, the official podcast of the Design Automation Conference. We're here because design automation is something that happens year-round, not just for a week in the summer. Hosting the podcast, this is Eric Seligman from Cadence Design Systems, along with Rich Edelman from Siemens EDA. Today, we're going to be interviewing Giovanni De Michelli, who's the director of the Institute of Electrical Engineering and the Integrated Systems Center at EPFL in Switzerland. He gave an excellent keynote speech called Strange Loops in Design Technology at our conference a few months ago. Aside from that, as you'll hear in the discussion, he's made contributions across a wide variety of areas of EDA, and he has some amazing insights into what's going to happen in our field over the next few decades. Let's listen to what he has to say. Maybe um, you can start uh, with telling us a little bit about your background, like where you started. And um, I guess, according to your bio, you were sort of the primary mover in creating the network on chip EDA paradigm. So I'm curious where you sort of started out and how it led you to that uh, discovery or, or idea. Yes, uh, actually, in life, many things sometimes happen by accident. When I was an undergraduate student, I studied uh, nuclear engineering, and it was quite a change to get to EDA. Actually, I had a scholarship to go to the United States, to Berkeley. It was for nine months. And then I ended up staying in the U.S. for 25 years. It was just at Berkeley that uh, I was uh, introduced and attracted to EDA uh, because of meeting Alberto San Giovanni Vincentelli and uh, Richard Newton. Both are formidable advisors. I'm just sorry that Richard is not longer with us. So I stayed in California after my PhD. After... IBM and Berkeley, I landed at Stanford. And there I worked on many, many topics of synthesis, um, including logic synthesis, high-level synthesis. I also worked on prototype high-level languages for design. Uh, We had one called Hardware C that was a little bit the father of system C. And uh, after working on synthesis for computation, I got interested in synthesis for communication. And this is all where the knock idea started. Also, I had interaction with my STEM colleague, Bill Daly, with my former graduate, Luca Benini. And my contribution is related to the EDA paradigm for network chips. That is, you define your communication scheme for on-chip communication, and you realize, synthesize the network chip as synthesizable Verilog code. So now were you originally trying to do this to sort of uh, solve nuclear engineering problems or how did you do that transition <laughs> between topics? Actually, uh, no, in the, in the very beginning, I was very attracted by physics. I wanted to understand the physics and how you do data acquisition and control. And that was a field of nuclear engineering where there's a lot of that. And from there, I moved on to electronics and electronics for measurements, and I understood that really the EDA is a field where you can match the physics of the devices, in this case, the transistors, and the complexity of large systems. So this was fascinating, and that's why I got into EDA. You obviously have done pretty well going into EDA. Uh, another thing I noticed in your bio is that you had more than 900 publications. So I tried to sort of sketch out the math on my notepad here. And it, if I'm doing it right, it means that you're doing like 40 to 45 publications per year. And, you know, and those are good publications too, because your citation index is off the charts. So 
can you say how how do you how do you keep up that pace? You have like an army of grad students that you direct and <laughs> things like that. Or no, I think that the quality is better than the quantity. Uh, I think always uh, what you say, well, what you need is people, people, people. <laughs> the secret is to have the best collaborators and best students around. And um, I'm lucky to say that I have had many at Stanford and at the PFL. We worked hard. We interacted well. We mixed theory and practice, coding, algorithm testings, experiments on real circuits, and that's the key. Also, I think that collaborating with peers in academia, in industry, is a key factor. And uh, I consider myself really lucky to have good collaborators. Uh, but I also think that spending time in looking for good people, looking for young people who want to get an EDA is really a very important factor, especially in these days, you know, that uh, people tend to move to topics that uh, are very popular, you know, explaining what is design, what are the challenges, what are the opportunities there is really important as part of my job as professor. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so now, have you have you always been a professor, or did you spend some time directly working as an employee of some of the major EDA companies? When I finished my PhD, I went to IBM. I was at the TJ Watson Center. Uh, that's a great place. Uh, probably it looked more like academia than a company. You know, that, <laughs> there was quite a bit of freedom to work on ideas, and there I met also remarkable people. I uh, I met Robert Brayton and we did some work together. And again, the enthusiasm and the desire to understand more about logic synthesis, logic design. And uh, the world changed a lot since then. I was there in the mid 80s. And I remember very well that uh, when I was saying, you know, in the future, you design chips like a program, you write a program and you compile it. And designers were laughing at that. No, 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 no. You don't understand it. <laughs> if you want to do a circuit, you have to do a schematic first, and then you make a model for simulation and you go on from there. You will do layout as well. <laughs> Maybe that's a better way of doing that. And luckily enough, I met people like John Daringer, Bob Brayton, and people actually who had this vision that uh, the world of design could change. And I think that was the mainspring toward having this revolution that EDA did and the industry in the Valley did to bring actually means to design complex circuits in a very ordered way. That's interesting. If I remember my mid eighties, so the, uh, there was a lot of talk of silicon compilers and um, high level languages to generate uh, chips. And um, we still seem to be struggling with that uh, kind of uh, toolkit. Is there, a is there some magic secret to getting our abstraction uh, levels higher? <laughs> I think that, uh, unfortunately, a lot of value in the tools is in the low end, in the part that's closer to the transistor, just because manufacturing is so complex. And there's a little bit less interest in the highest level, because somehow you can manage to do that by having designer working harder. But as designs get more and more complex, you need really high-level specification, you know, and uh, we've seen already that in, in many domains, people make models in C that are compatible into circuits, but that's still not common practice. But uh, high-level synthesis has made a lot of progress in the last few years. 
And I think it's really due to the fact that there are many players who want to have application-specific designs, and uh, they really need high-level abstractions. Now, maybe, maybe this would be a good segue to actually get in the theme of the keynote you gave a few months ago at DAC, which I really like, uh, called Strange Loops in Design and Technology, where you know you talked about these strange loops with sort of things that were happening at one abstraction level or influencing things happening at another abstraction level. Maybe can you say a little more about that? Yeah, I was always fascinating about uh, Doug Hofstetter work. You know, I... Uh, I met him briefly twice uh, and it added to my admiration for his work. Uh, incidentally, I also met his father, Robert, at Stanford. He was a <laughs> physicist. I think that Doug's work is about connections in art and science. And connection about humans are fascinating. I was also influenced by David Mitchell's novel, Cloud Atlas, and the film, the movie that was made by the Wachowski brothers, or sisters. Some of the contribution to our science and society uh, propagate through links that sometimes we, we, we cannot uh, observe or control. But these things are key to the evolution. You know, in EDA, we have seen actually uh, interesting links between uh, testing and synthesis, between physics and physical design. And all these fields have influenced each other in the people maybe didn't realize that this link was behind that. Yeah, so you're talking about also sort of spiral patterns. Is that basically the same concept? Or how do spiral patterns relate to these strange loops? That's a good question. You know, I talked about it in my that keynote. The experience comes from uh, work and collaboration and that goes across domains of engineering. I'll give you an example that actually revolves around the relation between the device itself and EDA for designing circuits. This is quite related to my group. About 12 years ago, we were interested in, uh, in this advanced design based on uh, silicon nanowires. These are basically the progenitors of Samsung's uh, nanosheets and the TSMC 2N devices. So this is actually has impact on, on the current device uh, design. We did some test runs in the fab and we look for unusual application. One of these is to use this electrostatic doping. That is, you can make a device, a transistor N or P, according to a polarization that you give for another electrode. By having this, uh, we could design some uh, logic gates that are more complex in a simple way. So for example, we could build some exclusive ores, we could do, build some majority gates uh, that were simpler and effective. We told ourselves, you know, why do we as digital designers always think in terms of NAND source or end or inverse? These are actually the uh, abstraction that we were taught, you know, in, in the 70s, in the 80s, they are still there, but we could think differently. And so going from the device to the EDA that we needed. And we, we look for new models. We worked on the uh, majority algebra and we had different abstraction and different algorithms for designing with these advanced gates. Now, the interesting part of the story comes here. Once we have done that, that is we have developed EDA for emerging technologies, we said, what happens if we apply it to CMOS that we use today? 
And we figure out that those methods that had different abstractions actually were doing better, especially for timing, for designing faster circuits. And uh, we were kind of proud of that. And actually some of these technologies actually became part of the mainstream in EDA companies. That showed actually the link going from device to EDA and then back to device. You know, that's the notion of the spiral. You go back to the field and we looked at devices that actually that uh, need majority-based algebra, like superconductors, like uh, optical devices. And we found again that now that we have tools, these tools can feed into new circuits, that then we required again new EDAs. And uh, the circle or the spiral keeps on feeding itself. So actually, um, you just hit on uh, superconductors, which is another area I don't know much about, but find really interesting. So you said these these new abstractions are more appropriate to sort of superconducting electronics uh, than maybe to older uh, types of designs. And wh what else has superconduct or superconductors and superconducting uh, done to change the EDA industry, or will it change more in the next well, ten years? Well, superconducting. Superconducting electronics is still a small niche, but it has the potential, you know, to make uh, data flows that are running 10x or 50x as compared to CMOS. So there's a lot of potential in there. But what's interesting there is that in uh, uh, some families of superconductors, a gate will switch based off the majority of currents that come in. Somehow currents flowing into the device sum up and based on the sum, there's a true or false. And there's a similarity in optics. You know, in optics, you deal with waves and these waves will interfere. So when they interfere, either they sum or they subtract. And in the game, the, the true or false comes out of the majority of the impinging waves on your device. That's absolutely interesting because then majority logic becomes the native abstraction for these technologies. And you can do much better in design if you have model and algorithms that are built on majority rather than those that built on the standard abstraction in terms of ends and ors. So that's interesting. We, we need to be flexible about thinking of what are primitives in digital design. And we need to be fairly open-minded into which models we want to use if we want to be successful in using or even evaluating emerging technologies. I would say that today we are still very much into the evaluation phase of these technologies, but EDA tools are quintessential. On that subject about EDA tools, so um, you mentioned earlier that a lot of times the interest goes to other places, maybe social media companies and all the engineering hires go over there. How do we get the, the EDA tools to be sexy so that people stick around? And because uh, I, I find it fascinating, these, uh, all these EDA tools myself. Uh, how do we get the, the new breed to come into the, you know, the hiring and get, get, them, get them to apply their, their intellect here as opposed to social media or other places? Yeah, you know, that's the usual problem. You know, there are topics in fashion that attract people. Yeah. But the value behind EDA is that, that there's a technology that's extremely impactful. There's intellectual property, there are patents, there's value that stays through the years. And if you look at the industry, the EDA industry is 
extremely vibrant and and doing well these days. And as people are moving to, you know, more and more to social media, to AI and so on, they do need hardware. We need a hardware that it's much better than we were yesterday and tomorrow we'll need again hardware that's better for that. So we need to pass the message along to the young generation. You need to study this. You need to understand how design is done. Otherwise, you will never get really the job done, you know, if you only think software, when you think of applications. Right. And sometimes I like to think about the things, the kinds of technology that we enable, you know, from ultrasound machines to other kinds of things that keep, keep people healthy, uh, heart pacemakers, you know, and it really feels good as opposed to just building the next social media network. And I tell students when I meet them and they are early on in their studies, I say, well, look at two objects uh, that you're interacting with every day. You know, one is the cell phone, you know, how the hell you do it, how you design it, you know, by the way, cell phone chips have interesting application of networks on chipping side. It's a very complicated object. And today there are fantastic cell phones around. And the second one is the car, you know, the smart car. This is evolving. We will see cars that are better and better. And I, I call this car, these are supercomputers on wheels. You know, <laughs> the intelligence in the electronics of a car is fascinating. You uh-huh. can um, help avoiding accidents, helping driving long distances without getting stressed. There is a very bright future in there. And it's actually important that young people get, you know, that we are living in a society where these objects are extremely powerful, impactful. Beside the other things that you mentioned just uh, in your question, you know, the electronics for health, the electronics for a better environment, there's lots of value there too. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a lot harder just because we're not really developing sort of consumer-facing technology, right? You're, nobody, if you ask the average guy on the street or even the average college senior majoring in computer engineering, Right, they they won't even be aware of what EDA is. Yeah, that's interesting. Even though you know EDA companies have been doing campaign to explain, you know, that when you see a chip and the sweet and Intel inside, you know, you see the label, but that chip is done also with EDA industry tools that go inside, not physically but metaphorically. I think that we should keep on doing passing along the message because. People is what we need. There's a big shortage of engineers in in electronics, in digital design in the US and in Europe. And I would say probably in particular also in EDA. So the uh, so your talk that you gave at, um, at DAC, I didn't get to listen to it live, but I, I watched it last week. And now last week I did have a little bit of a COVID fog, uh, but I, I needed to watch it again. So I've watched it two more times this week and it, it's starting to click. And I, I really like the spiral and the loops. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by, by titles. Strange loops really got me. But And how that you can sort of be working this, um, this research, this new technology, but then bring it back to current applications. Like you talk about uh, CMOS and then going to new technology and getting EDA for that new technology, but then bringing it back to the CMOS problems that, that exist. It's uh, it's uh, very exciting to think about these new technologies and or bring back uh, new tools to bring back to the existing technologies and, and drive things forward. Is there is there a next step to strange loops? There are always strange uh, next steps. 
um, <laughs> we, we, we keep on progressing and we keep on changing things. Uh, you see, uh, Doug's book elaborated a lot on Bach. Uh, I like Bach, but it's not one of my favorite. And I like jazz music. I uh, was recent, uh, recently listening to one of my favorite, that's Keith Jarrett's current concert. And again, if you listen to that, you know, you get the motive and this motive gets repeated. And after a while, you get into a new type of music, which is wonderful introduced by the previous music. So he does this job over and over again. And Keith Jarrett is, is really a master. And in EDA, there is really a parallel to that. You know, we have some difficult challenges uh, we have problems that are both uh, computationally hard and then large size. And then you see what researchers do. You know, they attack them with various heuristics. And there are various variations on the theme in the beginning until you get to the person that does the jump. I'll give you an example of, you know, this is an old example. We go back to, again, the 80s and 90s. When I was at IBM, there was this old PLA. Uh, technology and there was a lot about you know improving uh, design with PLAs. There was the famous uh, program Espresso that uh, was developed at Berkeley that probably is the biggest hit in the academic world and industrial world. But after that, people start moving the abstraction farther. They looked at this notion of the link PLAs and the notion of logic networks. And you find this uh, concept of link PLA already in the writings on uh, Socrates, that was the early tool by Ardehus, Ardehus, the uh, founder of Synopsis. And it's interesting how this notion of PLA got moved on to the linking of blocks and then became the linking of cells, which is semi-custom design as we know, and linking of lookup tables, which is FBGA design. And of course, now if you look backwards, we said, oh yeah, sure, that's obvious. But uh, in those times, it was hard to understand that we were developing just one tool over one block of logic that then was becoming the kernel of a connection of blocks that is what actually make today's chips that are extremely complex. And EDA actually grew along with the semi-custom industry. And it's been amazing how, again, semi-custom industry, library design and fabrication went side by side with tool modeling, algorithms and synthesis technology. I want to also get a little bit into some of the other uh, emerging technologies that you uh, mentioned in your talk. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about what's happening with quantum computing and how that fits into this discussion? Oh, yes, of course. Quantum is the big question. You know? I was saying in my talk, quantum or not quantum, this is the question, you know, <laughs> whether quantum requires uh, large investments, and, but if you don't move, uh, you risk to stay behind. Big paradigm shift. You know, we are moving from deterministic computing to statistical computing, where actually we measure output patterns with their frequencies, and we will not have this deterministic answer to an input pattern, but uh, we can have, on the other hand, answers that uh, are subject to errors, but still that they explore a very large 
design space, the design and solution space, so that we can solve our problems and we can have a really good speed up. Actually, to be practical, you know, uh, most of algorithms that we use, they, they need some sorting. And in sorting, if you use quantum technology, you have a quadratic speed up. So that's significant because it's applicable all over, you know, in, in applications. And uh, what do we need to do? You know, when you look at these problems and we try to distill what designers and physicists are doing, we are facing two things that go side by side that remind us of the first time in which we had processors, you know, and think of the first microprocessor of the 4004 by Intel. So two sets of problems. One is how we get the physical chip done to gain the physical design issues, how you scale it up, you know. Nowadays, you still talk about 100 qubits. That's little compared to <laughs> what we need to have in the end to have reliable quantum computing. And then there's the, the other aspect, which is the quantum compilation, how you map an algorithm into the assembly code for quantum computing. This assembly code is often called quantum circuit, so people get confused, but it's an equivalent of an assembly code and that's abstraction and you need both. You need the way to map an algorithm into this code and you need to, this code to be able to run on a processors. And uh, that's the challenge that we have today because we have to make both of them work. I think it's a fantastic op opportunity for engineers who want to look at new EDA problems and for people who are at the boundary between engineering and physics who want actually to get embodiments of these uh, quantum circuits. Yeah, I mean, these seem so different and strange. It seems like we have to sort of develop our whole EDA suite essentially from scratch again for this family of computing. Or am I missing something or are we really in that and situation? Again, yes, that's true. But then again, you see the spiral. Uh, you know, we have current EDA for CMOS. We have this new technology, which is very different because here we have a paradigm shift compared to other technologies. We have to do EDA for doing that design. And this EDA will probably be very time consuming, but will be probably build a bootstrap in the sense that then we can use in the future quantum computing in order to run EDA. We'll have this quantum EDA and this will enable us to do better quantum computing design. And we need to make this step. And actually this is a step in which the way of having quantum EDA, it's just, in a spiral, when you link, you just leap from one level to the next level up. And that's probably what we're going to see in the coming years, not too far from today. Continuing on the theme of sort of new and wild uh, computing paradigms, you also talked a little bit about uh, biological computing or sort of merging of biology with computation. Can you say a little bit more about that topic as well? Oh, yes. Uh, actually, over the last 20 years, we have seen biology becoming more of a quantitative science as compared to a qualitative and experimental science as it was before. And if you look at biologists, they've been using simulation for decades. They have an experience like we have in simulation. Now we have also new problems that are extremely interesting, like it's easy to do sequencing by the fact that it's easy to extract genomes, 
then we have the problem of reconstruct them and find the significance of this genome. And uh, unfortunately, as it is easy to uh, get a lot of data, then we may end up being lost into a lot of data that we can generate. And again, there we need to have some software tools and uh, there are actually many opportunities to leverage EBA technologies. We can start from, uh, just to give you some example from data representation and manipulation of data, you know, techniques like those based on binary decision diagram BDDs, you know, that's a technology that we master that actually can be used to analyze biological data. And then if you want really to look forward, you can think of uh, technologies that we have today to manipulate genetic information like the CRISPR-Cas9 technology by which we can do gene editing. And we still today, we are the point in which do that at the assembly, assembly code level. You know, we just... Uh, have experts in biology who actually can give the instructions to alter uh, genes. But of course, it would be interesting to raise the abstraction by which you say, this is the outcome of what we would like to have with gene editing. And then we have the transformation that will give us the corresponding assembly code. Of course, that's the future. It's probably far away from us, but yes, really an interesting part of research and also an opportunity for EDA to get involved and to share experience and techniques with biologists and doctors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing I've wondered about is since DNA is really sort of a digital code now that we've started to understand it pretty well, how far are we away from, you know, the next IEEE system Verilog standard having a new biomodule construct we can use to program the genes of your computing device? Exactly. And actually, it goes, it's interesting because it goes both ways. What's what you said, you know? going from my high-level description down to being able to uh, modify genes and DNA. And the other one is also downloading our data that could be engineering data, could be other type of data into DNA as a way of storing information. DNA is a fantastic way for storing information, and yet we have to figure out whether it's practical or not to use it. So you also, you know, sort of related this to sort of human enhancement technologies. How, how do you see that tying in there? And, you know, what, what devices are you planning to plug into your brain in the next few years? Yeah, that's, that's going very far. And, you know, uh, we, we see today the impact of medical implants that are present in various incarnations. Zachary, it's uh, fantastic. They are from things that we call simple from an engineering point of view, but they're changing the life of people like the implants for people who have diabetes and there are many people who do have diabetes. And that's uh, the fact that you can actually measure glycemic, you can uh, drive uh, insulin pumps. That's fantastic because it gives these people a lot of independence. But those are basically the devices that are there to correct our deficiencies. Actually, the oldest device are the eyeglasses. You know, we had them for probably 1,000 years, the eyeglasses, and nobody actually asks ourselves, you know, it seems that it's a part of our life to have eyeglasses. But then you see, for example, exoskeletons for uh, recovering, you know, injuries. Uh, this is a fantastic technology. And there are also some fantastic technology to um, control by signal the spine and to recover from spine injuries. This is fantastic. There are 
few examples of people who recover partially from spine injuries. And it's fantastic to be able to enable a person who believes to be condemned to a wheelchair to be able to walk, you know, and this is quite impactful. And we are just at the beginning of that. But then there's another aspect, which is uh, quite uh, interesting, you know, is uh, how can we improve our performances as humans? And again, you take sports, uh, you can uh, improve your performance by exercising, that's fine. But if you do it by using drugs, that's not fine. I think there's a very clear boundary there. And uh, we know that. But what about professionals, you know? Of course, we, we improve our performances by using computer laptops, you know, uh, personal assistance that we have. But it's known that people use it again by using drugs and how fair that is. There's a fine line that actually it's never been really discussed. You know. If you really want to go behind that, yeah, I think that in the future, you know, this brain machine interface, it's absolutely fascinating. You know, how can we extend the, uh, uh, memories by being able to access, you know, data, being able to remember things, uh, uh, not just indirectly by going to a computer, but uh, directly by going to, uh, to a database or uh, to some sort of story that we can access with our thoughts. That's very interesting, but it also goes the other way around. And probably that's something that's very close to us. We still use keyboards. And I think that that's that takes time. I, I was never able to type fast on a keyboard, and that's uh, somehow a limit to my productivity. And yes. uh, I waste some of my free time because I'm still there typing. And how we go beyond that, actually, we, we can do part of that by speech, but how can we actually interact with a machine and say, this is what I want, and quickly just download on a computer our thoughts or our desires or what we want to achieve. My, my wrists are starting to hurt from all my typing today, so I definitely understand that. <laughs> well, I, I really like the idea of not having to use the keyboard anymore. That's a great idea. Um, for, these, for these engineers that are out there now, and they're doing their chip design, and they're, they're struggling away, and they want some better EDA. They, want, they don't know what that is, but they want better EDA <laughs> to help them. Where do we where do we stand with that? What would we what do you advise maybe as a first step or today you know practical uh, solution today? Maybe there's something in the future. What are the what are the solutions that EDA can bring to them that they're maybe not using? Well, I think that the EDA community and industry should watch more how humans behave and interact. You know, all EDA tools are meant with the idea that the chip the product is at the center of the attention and that we have to do models, use computers in order to make them. But we never look at the, in the other direction or we seldom do it and look at how humans think. I would like to input the information, how they would like to work with tools. Some designer get discouraged by using tools, probably because the interface is not that good. And if you look at what's happening to social media, there's been a lot of progress there in trying to be, you know, friendly, friendly to the user. So friendly DA, in my opinion, it's a, it's a very important point, you know, and that requires a lot of investment 
not just in you know the nitty-gritty details of building the hardware, but also in the way in which you interact, in which you predict, you know, there are ways of predicting whether a model will work or not, so that you can guide the designer to have a model that is compilable, simulatable, realizable. And I think that we can make a lot of progress in that direction. I think that relates to the user interface, to the use of high-level models, uh, that we never had a real language that we all like to describe, you know, circuits and what we want to do. And of course, then tools that start from there without having gaps, you know, our tools sometimes have a gap and designers have to put in hours of work to go beyond that gap. Yeah, that, that reminds me, you know, predicting things working and helping the designers. I, I once, watched, once watched a designer, he had a screen full of waveforms wiggling on his screen <clears> and he would get out. And then he would fiddle around with his finite state machine. He would move lines around and then he would get back in, re-simulate and look at those waves again and get out and get back in. He, he did that over and over for about half an hour. And I thought, hmm, there must be a better way. Yeah, but that, that's the way in which we were all thought mm -hmm. and, yes. uh, to do designs. And we do, we do a sketch, we try it out, we simulate it and keep on refining it. You know, right. that's been around since the beginning. And, and, and maybe that's what we we help to automate. You look at synthesis technology uh -huh. in the beginning with silicon compilers promise, you know, top-down, error-free design with just one touch. We learn it, you know, in the 80s that it wouldn't work. And synthesis technology got better and better. And then, of course, you know, timing closure, design closure has always been the problem. And new techniques have been able to reduce, you know, time to closure. But that's still... A problem there and uh, that's the problem that relates back to human factors and uh, frustration of designers and that's also where we have to work to make that better to make that more friendly and uh, to be able to capture better what is the desire what is the will of the designer in the design that sometimes we we cannot catch Right. Yeah. I, I like your friendly, friendly interfaces because the, uh, I think they've been using these tools for a long time and they trust them. And then we, we provide some new EDA for them and they don't know what to expect. They, maybe it's not friendly, maybe it's hard to use and um, they don't try it when really you know, it just needs a little polish and then they, they'll, they'll improve their lives, but they're, we need to make it, we on the EDA side need to make it more friendly to, for them to get going. Yes. But the reality is that, you know, that the technologies put out new technology nodes. And that's fantastic technology, very complex technology. The first problem on the line of managers is to make sure that you can use EDA for those type of technology. You need a lot of investment back there. That's the problem that we are sucked in very often by the backend technology. Uh -huh. And we should work more on the front end and understand that that's, that's also important. And that's where we need investments, you know, because that's what actually, uh, in my opinion, is the add-on value to EDA tools and flows, while the backend is the necessary part that we need, of course, to cope with a new technology. I would like to thank you for this interview. It was a real pleasure for me to be with you and thank you for your invitation. 
I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email us at podcast.dac.com if you have suggestions or ideas for future episodes. By the way, don't forget that you can still submit to the DAC Engineering Track for 2023. Check out the details at dac.com. And this concludes your DACcast for today.